reading for today comes from Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Listen now to the word of the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head. Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or his mother, for brother or sister, if they die, shall he make himself unclean, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome. We are in the middle of a series of sermons I'm preaching uh, this season on uh, sacred pathways based on a book uh, by Gary Thomas looking at different ways uh, for us to explore uh, worshiping and loving God. Um, Just out of um, curiosity, those of you who have been in uh, small groups and have been looking at these different ones, how many of you um, sort of um, tested for a naturalist? Anybody like were like strong naturalists? How about sensate? Any strong sensates? Just one? How about traditionalists? Oh, okay. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I figure, as I said before, because we're uh, Presbyterians, uh, or this is a Presbyterian church, that we are going to skew towards certain pathways. Um, so today, uh, we're going to talk about the, the aesthetic, or the uh, asceticism. Um, maybe you think of like monks and those people who are alone. Um, and we'll see uh, where this pathway uh, will lead us today. Let, let's pray together. God, thank you for, um, again, for your word and for this day, um, for this time that we have together. Uh, help us to hear your word. Let Your words uh, speak to us. We ask this in Christ. Amen. So the ascetic pathway, I think, might be one of the most needful pathways for us to explore um, because it is so contrary to the world around us. We live in a very loud, noisy, and cluttered world. We are constantly distracted uh, by advertisers and the pursuit of new acquisitions, we're tethered to our computers and phone screens that, uh, with notifications, or the social media that demand our ongoing and constant attention. And frankly, many people are just simply exhausted by a ceaseless river of activities that leave us very little room or time for reflection. And so into this whirlwind, 
uh, this pathway reminds us, I think, uh, at least a couple of things that are important for us to consider today. Uh, Solitude and simplicity, or the words that I prefer and I'm going to talk about, apartness and austerity. So first, apartness. Um, You all know the, the, the acronym FOMO, Fear of missing out. That's a big problem for a lot of people. Um, this, this sense of like um, people are doing stuff and I don't get to be a part of that. That this is right. That's why we're constantly checking our uh, phones and uh, to see if there's things going on. Um, but I discovered that there's all kinds of variations on FOMO. I don't know if you know this. Do you know what MOMO is? Ah, it's okay. So. Young people know. Um, Momo is the mystery of missing out. And this is the paranoia when your friends don't post anything and you fear that they are having too much fun without you to post anything. <laughs> then there's the FOMO. This is the fear of the mystery of missing out. This is when your phone battery has died and you fear not missing out, but the uncertainty of not knowing that you might be missing out. Then there is FOGI, which is the fear of joining in. You don't want to post anything because you're worried that people won't comment or like your posts. Then there is BROMO. This is when your brothers protect you from missing out by deliberately not posting the fun they had without you. <laughs> then there is SLOMO, slow to missing out. And this is everyone did in fact have a great time without you. And you missed out because you were sleeping and you didn't see the post until the next day. And my favorite one, the one I want to talk about today, is JOMO. And JOMO is the joy of missing out. This is the pleasure of not being everywhere and just sitting home, drinking tea, and reading a book. You're glad you're missing out. I like that. And I think the pathway today, the aesthetics, this is, their, this is them. They want to be left alone to be in prayer. They have come to understand the song we just sang, right? Better is a, better is a moment that I spend with you than a million days, uh, whatever the lyrics were. <laughs> Not good with music. But you remember this, all right? That they, they understand that one moment spent alone with God, that that is, that is a greater treasure than all these other ceaseless activities that they might uh, engage in. Uh, for me, it conjures up these images of monks, people who maybe live alone in the desert, things like that. Uh, in the Bible, John the Baptizer comes to mind immediately. Remember, he had a very simple diet of uh, locusts and honey. He wore rough clothes. He lived in the desert. Uh, the prophet Elijah uh, spent time alone uh, by the river, being fed by ravens. Uh, and then he encountered God uh, you know, in, 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 the, in the moments of silence, in the sounds of silence. Uh, but we also know that Jesus also spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted, and he often sought out lonely places to pray by himself. The Apostle Paul uh, spent time in the uh, Arabian desert in preparation for his ministry after his encounter um, with Jesus. Uh, M. Basil Pennington writes in a book, A Place Apart, Monastic Prayer and Practice for Everyone. He says, if anyone, if one note is to characterize the true monk, it is this. He's the one who has gone apart to be in some way alone. To be in some way alone. Time and space somehow to be alone. 
Uh, even if you're married and you've got kids and you've got tons of things going on at work, uh, they, they have to find some way, it's essential for them, uh, to find some way to be alone. Uh, they experience God in this way before God where they can focus exclusively on God without all these kinds of other uh, distractions. And so they prefer spaces uh, like the desert where there are you know, no distractions. Um, and it, it requires a, a time away from people, from things. Um, and if, if it's not possible because of, your, because of their lives, they'll find ways to do it uh, within their schedules. You know, maybe they'll just get up really early in the middle of the night when they can just spend some time alone uh, uh, without all the other distractions. There's an often told story about uh, Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley was the, the uh, mother of uh, John and Charles Wesley. Um, and she herself came from a family of 25 kids. She was the last of 25 kids. And then she herself had 19 kids. And um, so you can imagine... It's a noisy household. Um, and so the story is often told where um, she would sit in, the, in her living room in the middle of the chair, and every now and then she would just take her apron and she would just cover her head. And that's how she got time alone with God. And so kids knew kind of like when mom's got the apron on, you kind of leave her alone, right? So even with all the craziness going around her, I mean, she, she knew that she needed to carve out even that little time to have alone with God. Um, you know, and I've been emphasizing community and the need to be together in the body as well as in spirit. But this particular pathway calls us for at least some time to be apart and alone. It's not a permanent condition. Um, it's not an excuse to avoid people or to neglect your social obligations. Um, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, Superman. Even Superman had, you know, the fortress of solitude where he could just kind of get away for a little bit of time. But it was to, to get away, to be recharged, to retreat, to be uh, refreshed, and then to come back to the tasks and to the people uh, that have been placed in front of us. And so I think this particular pathway appeals to uh, a certain kind of temperament. Those of you who are introverts, uh, this may be more appealing. But I think you know, extra, extroverts, in some ways, may need this even more because they're less comfortable being alone. And um, even though... you know. We're living in a time where people are just reporting just higher and higher levels of feeling lonely and being left out. Um, despite all the time that we spend trying to connect to people on, through social media, uh, this, this sense of missing out, this sense of disconnect, um, and, and we don't want to be disconnected. And so uh, time alone um, can seem very, very frightening to be alone with your own thoughts um, and this is not the kind of sort of uh, forced isolation and loneliness that is dreadful, but this is a kind of aloneness that you choose because you know that at the end of that or through that, you can learn something even more important. And so I think this pathway teaches us the importance and the joy of being alone and alone with God. And as I said, I think it's particularly important now uh, in the kind of environment that we're living in today. So that's apartness. Uh, secondly, austerity. Uh, in many ways, this pathway is the direct opposite of the sensates. They not only not want uh, mem- uh, sensory overload, they want as little sensory input as possible. They don't want elaborate rituals like the traditionalists, uh, though they may want to you know, pray outdoors. Uh, they prefer simplicity, simplicity, 
minimalism. They, they prefer the barrenness of the desert rather than the beauty of the scenic mountains like the naturalists. Um, last Saturday at our Leaders' Day, uh, our guest speaker spoke um, about how uh, they built a new church and he, he shared about how their new church building, is, it looks like a corporate building, like any building that any company might have. And he says that the problem with that is that when they're having their meetings in this building, it feels like they're having a corporate meeting, right? This, this uh, corporate ethos just kind of creeps into their meetings and they, they have to fight against that um, because the space itself imposes a certain kind of feeling. And so I thought, well, that's good that we have you know, a chapel to do our worship in rather than a, a building like that. Um, the fact that we're also in a seminary probably means that Again, maybe it's just at a subconscious level. It's, it's like leaning us or drawing us toward a more uh, educational aspect uh, of our faith. Because, you know, space, uh, our environment, they, they do shape us. They do influence us. Uh, I know that many of you, or at least some of you, are uh, fans of Marie Kondo. Um, she's, you know, her method of tidying up, and she's got a new show on Netflix. Um, those of you who don't know... Um, She's this uh, organization guru, I guess. Um, and her method involves, you know, putting all your stuff into a pile by category, right? So you take all your clothes, and then you go through each item of clothing one by one, and, and you hold it, and you ask yourself, does this T-shirt spark joy? If it doesn't, you put it into one pile. If it does, then you put it into a pile. So you go through every item one by one, and you only keep those items that spark joy. Right? Are you familiar with this, right? Yeah. So um, it's very popular, apparently. Um, it's, it's a way of kind of simplifying your life. It's, it's a way of decluttering your home. Uh, it's a way of organizing your life. And on the surface, her method of uh, reducing possessions seems to align with the ascetic uh, pathway. Um, it's simplifying, it's getting rid of possessions, and um, I suppose, as I said, you know, it's, the environment does influence us, so maybe um, having less stuff and being decluttered and being neat will give you a greater sense of peace and maybe even joy. Uh, I, I think that's possible. Um, and it's true that we, we certainly have too much stuff in our homes. We all have too much stuff. There's no, no question about that. Uh, according to John Roseman, for example, the typical American child of five has 240 toys. I think that's an underestimation. <laughs> I really do. Right? 240 toys, that's one new toy per week right? for five years in a row, pretty much. That's a lot. Uh, a similar study in Britain found that the average 10-year-old has about the same number of toys, but that that child will only play with about a dozen or so of their toys. All that stimulation that's available, and you know that your kids are constantly bored, constantly distracted, and always needing some new toy or form of entertainment. Um, and so even though uh, all the studies now show that the fewer toys a kid has, the happier they are. 
we continue to buy more and more toys, right? That if a child has uh, just a few toys or fewer toys, that they, they play with it longer, they enjoy it more, you know, they're, um, all that good stuff. Uh, and yet we don't. We, we continue to accumulate and clutter. And it's not just kids, right? It's, it's us. It's too. Adults. The LA Times reported that the average American home has 300,000 items. 300,000 items. That's, that's a lot. That's a lot. Um, so much stuff um, that off-site storage has been the fastest growing segment of the commercial real estate industry over the last four decades. 25% of people who have a two-car garage don't have room to park even one car because it's just basically a closet. We have more TVs in our homes than the number of people living in our homes. Right? I mean, you can, the list goes on and on in terms of just how much stuff we have that we don't really need and we don't even know that we have or we enjoy. And so people like Marie Kondo, I think make, they make a good point. Like, get rid of that stuff. Get rid of some of that stuff. However... Uh, as Sophie Gilbert remarks in an article in The Atlantic, we are living in a time in which, quote, identity and achievements are visual metrics to be publicly displayed and curated, and a happy home is a perfected, optimized one. She writes that Marie Kondo's sensibilities have captured this cultural moment perfectly, right? It's not just about decluttering and maximizing your limited spaces, what Marie Kondo and others like her offer is the hope, is the hope that if you organize your life to look just right, the rest will follow. It sounds promising, but as other studies have pointed out, this pursuit of optimization, not only of my living spaces, but of my own life, my career, my kids, my spouse, all of that, has led to making people incredibly miserable. Getting you know, rid of some stuff and tidying up your home and striving toward a perfectly curated identity and home, that is not what we're talking about today. That is not what this ascetic pathway is about. It's not about presenting a facade of a minimalized or an optimized life. Compared to the barrenness of the desert and the wilderness, a perfectly curated space is really no different from the clutter of excess of possessions in our homes. From, the, from this pathway, they're the same. They're both opposed to this particular pathway. Instead, the ascetic chooses to sacrifice, to be austere for something better because they recognize the dangers of the seed that fell among thorns in Jesus' parable they don't want the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and possessions to choke them from bearing good fruit. They purposely choose to leave behind good things for the enjoyment of a better God. They will choose to minimize distractions and the idols, and despite living in a culture of unfettered materialism, they choose to forgo those comforts and luxuries and choose instead simplicity, plain foods, just a few possessions. And I think, you know, when everyone and everything around us is trying to make our lives easier and more comfortable, uh, it may seem an odd thing to do to try to make your life intentionally more difficult. Um, I, 
But you know, there, there, is, there is value uh, in doing that, right? Um, athletes, for example, will go through very difficult and strenuous physical regimen in preparation for a, for a big game or something like that. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, our soccer coach had this philosophy that he was going to make practices as miserable as possible so that when we had the games, the games would be fun and easy. Um, it was true. I mean, we lost most of our games, so the games were miserable too. But, but it was, he was right in that the games were much easier because practices uh, were so hard. Um, and I, I think, that, you know, I know for myself, like my kind of incessant demand to be warm when it's cold outside or to be cool when it's hot outside, uh, my demands for my, my fleshly comforts, my inability to put up with some temperature inconveniences, you know, it reveals uh, not only a weakness of body, but a weakness of spirit, a, a spiritual immaturity. Uh, I know that whenever I'm on a mission trip, for example, I'm so disappointed uh, with the weakness of my body, but even more disappointed uh, with the, the weakness of my my attitude, right? That it's like, oh, this is so bad. Like, you know, I can't stand these mosquitoes or it's, it's too hot or, or whatever. Um, and I think what we complain about says a lot about who we are, what we value, what our priorities are. Are we complaining, you know, that people are not being treated well, for example? Or are we complaining, oh, I don't have air conditioning? Of course, you can complain about both. I understand that. Uh, and, and I'm not, again, suggesting that, you know, we become some sort of masochist and, you know, punish our bodies or anything like that. But I think as many of you have experienced, um, if you've been on a, like a, a mission trip, for example, or when you've intentionally chosen times of fasting, of silence, of solitude, or anything like that, where you can kind of focus more uh, on God, uh, when you've intentionally chosen austerity for something, or rather someone better, um, you, you know that it can be a kind of a spiritually fortifying uh, experience. It can, it can purify you. And it can remind you, you know, kind of how dependent you are on these things. And, and maybe that can lead you to kind of be more thankful for them and to try to think about how can I be more dependent on God who provides these things for me. And so today's reading uh, really, I think, highlights these two aspects of the ascetic uh, life pathway. These uh, these attributes of apartness and austerity uh, in the vow that you heard about from Numbers. It's the Nazarite vow. Um, the Nazarite vow. I, I re- in preparing this message on my uh, word processor, uh, I would occasionally type um, Nazarite uh, with a small n, and my word processor would tell me, uh, you know, there would a correction, and the correction would be. Nazi right. I thought, no, that, that, that's not good. So uh, I thought, maybe I shouldn't call it this a, a Nazarite vow. Um, because in Numbers, it's described also as a special vow, the Nazarite vow. And it can also be translated as an exceptional vow, or as I'm going to refer today, as a wonderful vow. That's another way of thinking about it. Uh, the word itself, Nazarite, comes from a root meaning to separate, to set apart, to make holy, to consecrate. Um, and so those who take this vow are set aside, they intentionally set aside a certain amount of time uh, for God, and they're required to uh, abstain from, from three things. First, they cannot drink or eat anything from the vine. So this is not just a prohibition against alcohol and wine. 
It covers everything from grape juice to raisins to, you know, I don't know, the, the, the peels, or the seeds, like everything. Like nothing that's related to the vine is to be touched or consumed. Um, they, the Israelites, as you know, they had a broad set of dietary restrictions uh, as a sign of their holiness, as a sign of their belonging t- to God. Uh, and so everyone followed this, these broader dietary restrictions. But those who take this wonderful vow voluntarily put an even greater restriction uh, upon themselves. Secondly, they cannot cut their hair. Again, uh, there were some uh, rules about hair. For example, in Leviticus 19, uh, it says, For the men, you shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. So there, there are some restrictions about the way uh, people could have their hair. Uh, but here, those who take this wonderful vow, uh, they have an absolute, they have an absolute restriction. You cannot cut your hair at all. You just have to let it grow. And third, those who take this vow, this wonderful vow, uh, cannot come in contact with a dead body. Again, there are there rules about ritual purity, about what happens if you touch something that's dead and so on. But this is, an, again, an absolute, absolute vow that even if one of their parents or one of their sibling dies during this period of the vow, they can't even uh, go near them. I mean, so it's, it's, it's a very drastic kind of vow that people take. Um, Everyone in the community, of course, is expected to follow what we might call a kind of ordinary holiness. God said, I am holy, you shall be holy. Everyone has to follow the teachings of all the law. But those who take this particular vow take it to the next level. They are voluntarily placing themselves under these greater restrictions so that they can be set apart for God. They want to be especially dedicated to God and God's service. And, uh, and so that's why they have these restrictions. It's not just uh, you know, wine and maybe getting drunk and doing something stupid that is being prohibited. It's everything from the grape to the raisins, everything that has to do with the vine. It's not just you know, keep your hair looking nice and neat. It's don't touch it at all. And no exceptions, no exceptions in terms of coming in uh, contact with the dead or some sort of a ritual impurity by touching something that has died. Those restrictions are given uh, really because those who are fully dedicated to God should have no hint of anything related to death. I think that's why these restrictions are given. Those who are dedicated to God are making witness that they are alive to God and that death and decay have nothing to do with the God that they are, to whom they are dedicated. Right? Corpses, dead bodies, of course, are a sign of death. But beverages also, uh, when they go through fermentation, when fruits you know, they ripen, they, they, they decay, uh, they turn to vinegar. Right? These are all signs of decay and death. Hair, uh, of course, is, is associated with vitality, right? Uh, as we get older, we, we lose hair. Baldness is, you know, is, is not a good thing, right? So uh, it, it's a sign of our aging and our mortality. So all these restrictions are to say God and, and dedication to God is about life. And we don't want even a hint of decay or death associated during this time. Holiness and death are incompatible. That's, that's the message of, of these rituals. Life is entirely dependent on God. That's what it signals. 
And dedication to God during this period must uh, be fully dedicated to God so that it supersedes all relationships, including those close familial relationships. It's not that you know, wine or raisins or families are unimportant, but that God is the supreme good. And for this period of time, that that is going to uh, take precedent. This is a wonderful vow. It's an exceptional vow. And I say that because I, I don't, I think when we think, like for me, when I think of people taking these kinds of vows, you know, the image in my head is people, you know, slightly uh, off kilter, right? Uh, maybe a little unstable. Uh, these guys kind of, you know, living in the desert with long beards and, you know, and all that, looking angry and shouting and gloomy and, and all that. But that is not the picture that we are given of those who take these vows. Those who, are, who, who enter into this period of austerity are not like depressed, dirty, you know, people that you want to avoid. Those who take this vow actually have a greater joy because they're associating fully with life. They choose to be apart for a greater joy than the joy that we get from the comforts of life. There is no suggestion at all that they're going around sad or depressed. What the world what we might perceive as austerity and self-sacrifice and maybe even craziness, they consider as an expression of their love for God and their love of God. And by their lifestyle, I think, they silently and gently rebuke us, our idols of materialism and consumerism, and maybe call us back to a more modest and humble way of life. Uh, In the Bible, there are a number of people that we associate with the Nazarite vow. Uh, Hannah, for example, seems to have dedicated her son, Samuel, Uh, to the Lord, to this vow. Uh, The Apostle Paul, uh, we read about in Acts 18, where he uh, he finally cuts his hair because he had been under a vow, so it seems like he took this vow as well. Uh, Zechariah, heard from the angel Gabriel, uh, concerning his son John, he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Uh, So there there are instances where people seem to have taken on this vow in some, uh, some form of it, but the one that we always associate with the Nazarite vow, this, this wonderful vow, uh, is, is Samson. Samson. Samson's mother was told by an angel in Judges 13, You shall conceive and bear a son, therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink. So, I mean, she, she has to kind of be a part of this too. And eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be called a Nazarite, to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And so he was dedicated before he was born, and apparently he was supposed to be a Nazarite throughout his entire life. Uh, he, of course, broke all of the prohibitions. Uh, he, he touched uh, dead things. He uh, partied with the Philistines. Uh, and most famously, uh, most dramatically, uh, he had his hair cut. And, and he lost his power, right? He didn't realize what, with the cutting of the hair, it, uh, the spirit of the Lord had left him because that's what that uh, represented. Um, and so he's sort of this sort of uh, negative example of what this vow might do. And his case is a little bit different because even though we think of vows typically as being permanent, and in his case, it seems to have been lifelong. Uh, We think of uh, wedding vows, for example, that we think of permanence. We think of uh, ordination vows as being permanent. 
Uh, even the vows we take when we do infant baptism, uh, that's a commitment that we make uh, for our whole lives. But this particular vow, this, this Nazarite, this wonderful vow, um, is temporary. It's temporary. Numbers 6, the rest of the reading from chapter 6, which we didn't get to, it tells about how to end the vow, like what these series of offerings that you are to do when the time for the vow to end. And it even has a provision, if you, by accident, you know, come in touch, uh, contact with, with a dead body, here's what you need to do, and here's how you can start over and start it all over again. Um, so it was supposed to be a temporary vow to separate yourself for a period of time for a kind of heightened holiness, a heightened discipleship, and then you're supposed to return to the ordinary, normal call to holiness. So it's not like you're going from holy to unholy. You're going from holy to heightened holiness and back to regular holiness. Um, and the thing that I want to really point out in this vow that's very special is notice that in verse 2, it says that when either a man or a woman makes this special vow. This is a very rare instance in the scriptures where both men and women are specifically spelled out. Uh, more often, it'll just say men or humans. And we have to either infer that women are included or that it's specifically referring to men only. But here, it says when either a man or a woman. So there's, there's no confusion. Everybody can do this. Everyone can take this vow. And I think it speaks to the, to the deepest longings of our hearts to be, uh, to be in the deepest kind of uh, uh, intimacy with God. And it's something that calls for everyone uh, to, to do. It's done voluntarily. It's done publicly, right? Everyone knows you're doing it because there's a, there's a ceremony for when you enter into it. They see you, that you know, your hair looks you know, kind of unkempt. Right? You, you, you refuse certain drinks uh, in gatherings. Everyone knows you're doing it. And so there's a kind of a um, community support uh, as you're doing it. And they know when it's over because at the end of it, you get your hair cut. So they know that now you know, you're going to join uh, everyone else. And I think it, it reminds me very much to what we do when we commission a team for a particular uh, task, like, like on a mission trip or when we uh, commission uh, our teachers for a year-long uh, Sunday school, we commission them for a year where they commit for a period of time for a particular service, right? We make it very public. They take their vows. Uh, it's a time of a, kind of a heightened discipleship. And so even though we don't put these restrictions of, you know, for this time, um, you know, you can't cut your hair. Maybe we should do that so we know who our Sunday school teachers are. <laughs> for the whole year, if you're going to teach Sunday school... You cannot touch your hair. Um, But that's what we do. That's what we do. So they're taking a kind of vow like that. Well, uh, you know, in about five weeks, we're going to enter into the season of Lent. And it's a traditional time of giving up something to make a sacrifice of some comforts in your life, to choose some level of apartness and austerity. And so I'd like to just uh, encourage you, challenge you to start thinking about it now, even though it's a few weeks away. And, and whatever else you may decide to do during that time, I'd like you to make a commitment, um, as we've done in the past, to set apart those six Sundays, beginning in March, to stay at church for an extra 90 minutes. Because uh, we're going to have uh, small group meetings at, after service um, for fellowship, for lunch, 
for some Bible study. Um, and so I'd like you to make this, this wonderful vow just for those, those six weeks to, to spend an extra 90 minutes or so on Sundays with the community, to be a part with the community, um, and to share that time. Uh, let me just close with this, uh, this final thought. You know, in Matthew 2, the story of Jesus' childhood comes to a close with these words. Matthew says, And he went, Jesus went, and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This sentence has long puzzled uh, interpreters and scholars because there is no such prophecy in the Old Testament. And so people wonder, you know, what's, what's going on here? So some people think that maybe Matthew is thinking of the word netzer and trying to link it to Nazareth, uh, which is a word meaning branch. And there's um, a prophecy from Isaiah, for example, that says a root or a branch of Jesse will come. Um, but most scholars think that Mass is just kind of playing very fast and loose here with the sound of words. And he's connecting Nazareth and Nazarene with our word today, Nazar, Nazarite. That is, someone who has taken a vow, someone who has been uh, fully consecrated to God. So Jesus is going to be in this city, which, has, which sounds like this idea of consecration and separation. Um, but what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? The Nazarites are not supposed to drink or eat from the vine. And there is a point at the Last Supper where Jesus says, I will not drink from the, the fruit of the vine until... Uh, I come back and drink uh, with you in the, in the kingdom of God. But you know, Jesus made a lot of wine at the wedding in Cana. I mean, a lot of fine wine. And he was accused of being a drunkard. Like Samson. Those Nazareths are not supposed to come in contact with, with dead bodies. But Jesus often intentionally touched not only the dead, but the lepers and the sick and those who were considered ritually unclean. Like Samson. And so, as, he, as Jesus does with almost everything, he, he turns the thing kind of upside down and at the same time, he fulfills it. I mean, it's this weird thing that he does, right? He, he takes these, these laws, like about the Sabbath and the, the vow here, and he somehow inverts it and yet at the same time, he finds a way to truly and fully fulfill it. Uh, in other words, I think what Jesus is showing us in his life, and maybe Matthew did this intentionally or unintentionally, I don't know, but I think what ends up happening is that Jesus reveals to us what a life that is fully dedicated to God looks like all the time. He shows us what holiness looks like, that it is about life, and it is about life abundantly. It's not about excluding people away because you're ritually unclean. But, but it's gathering them. It's touching them. It's healing them. It's restoring them. Death has no place and no power over him. That's what the vow is all about. To have this absolute separation from death and decay. And in his life, it has no power over him. He's from Nazareth. That's why he's called a Nazarene. He's not a Nazarite. He's a Nazarene. Though he is set apart, he's set apart, he's, he's different. 
He's holy. But he lives with the people. Of course, there are times to get away, to be alone. Uh, but a life of holiness is not lived separated. But it's a way of finding that holiness as you are living within your communities. Jesus is absolutely obedient and redefines for us what it means to be holy and to be consecrated. It's not a going away permanently and a separation. It's a lived out holiness within their communities. It's not about you know, keeping some, some set of rules, but out living and, and loving the people and loving God in your midst. Uh, the Apostle Paul reminds us, or reminded the Colossians, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. And instead, he encourages them and us to hold fast to the head, that is Jesus, from whom the whole body nourished it together through its joints and ligaments grows and the growth that is from God. And so always we want to keep our eyes on the Nazarene. And so such following may mean that we take a temporary vow of periodic and heightened discipleship, uh, but the vows themselves uh, and, every, and anything else can never uh, be a substitute for God and for loving God himself. And so I just want to encourage you this week uh, to set aside some time to be alone, to pursue some of these practices like fasting and silence, but to do that with joy. But to do that with joy. It's not about like, oh, now I'm going to be miserable and I'm going to you know, put myself under these really harsh conditions. Uh, because it is a wonderful vow. Because it reminds you of life. It reminds you that you are connected to the source of life, the source of all joy, uh, Jesus. And then you, know, you come back from those times alone and you go back and work out your holiness in Nazareth or, or in New Brunswick or, or wherever you may be. Uh, let's pray together. Um, it, it occurs to me, I might have been better for us today just to kind of sit together uh, in silence. Um, so let's do that for just a moment. Just take a moment in silence. Be still before God and listen. God, would you help us to find our joy in you, to seek out times to be alone with you. And if that means that we forego certain uh, comforts, help us to bear them with joy, that we might have a greater joy with you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.